Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, 1 Samuel, chapters 14 and 15. Well, as we move forward with uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 14 today, we are in the midst of King Shaul of Israel's first war with the Philistines. Now this war was fought at Michmash Pass, especially essentially it's over a ravine, all right, that was a wadi, a dry riverbed. Um, and it was important because it provided a good roadway for commerce from the from the Jordan Valley, all right, this great rift valley in here, the Jordan River Towards, uh, towards the west, towards the east. All right? And this, this valley that came across connected with another one that brought, brought, could bring people and goods all the way over to the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. This strategic trade highway was important for the Philistines because they were in the shipping business. They controlled a long, narrow section of land that today is known as the Gaza Strip. And it provided, of course, very good water access. But you know, you're not going to last very long in the shipping business if you don't have a sufficient supply of goods to ship. And if you don't have a market to sell the products that you import. Therefore, they needed to have open caravan routes from their seaports along the seacoast to the, to the east and to the north of the Asian continent. Right? It was just a matter of economics. Now, this is a good time to remind you that the main reason for the Philistine aggression against Israel at this time indeed revolved around money and trade. Not, not so much a desire to expand the Philistine national territory per se. Now it's not that they would have rejected such an opportunity, but they just they were just dissatisfied to have military dominance over the region and thus control the people sufficiently enough to f- allow them to freely carry out their business of ocean-based commerce. Now you know, just as it is today, that the USA finds itself enmeshed in the turmoil of the Middle East, mainly due to our need for oil, it is that we truly have no desire to colonize these Arabian nations, but we necessarily do need to maintain military forces there to keep those channels of commerce open. It was the same thing with the Philistines. It just so happened that the land of Canaan was the crossroads of commerce for that region. And so Israel bore the brunt of the Philistines' decision to use force if need be to keep the flow of goods coming and going from their seaside nation to the other nations that surrounded and were beyond Israel. Nations with which they wanted to establish vigorous trade. And just as in the Middle East today, whereby those Arab businessmen and political leaders who benefit from their economic association with the West are amenable 
to having American forces, forces stationed on their soil, at least to some degree. There are those who do not reap from those same personal benefits, and so they view our American presence in their homeland as heavy-handed and an affront on their sovereignty, in some cases a threat to their dignity and way of life. So in Canaan, there were some Israelite clans and tribes that cut deals with the Philistines when they saw the benefit in doing so. But others of the Israelites, the bulk of them, that viewed the Philistine presence in their tribal territories as a danger and an attempt to lord over them, well, they resisted the Philistines at all costs. Does all this sound familiar? Now, Shaul, now the undisputed king over these Israelite territories in Canaan, wouldn't reign over anything that he could legitimately call a kingdom if these Philistines could just move around freely and set up military outposts on land that was supposed to be his territory. The Philistines weren't about to easily give up their economic lifeline. King Saul wasn't about to give up any of his newly found personal authority and sovereignty to those longtime foreign foes. So, this war we're reading about in chapter 14 was inevitable. All right? And the elders of Israel knew this well before the first arrow was shot in anger. And that's why they wanted to make a fundamental change in the government of Israel. They wanted a warrior king to rule over them and to protect their interests instead of a judge. Now, when we left off last time, Jonathan, was, who was the brave son of Saul, Jonathan instigated a confrontation with this large garrison, garrison of Philistine soldiers encamped at Mi'kmash. Okay, located in King Saul's home tribal territory of Benjamin. That of itself isn't any particular merit, but that Yohanan did it with the aid of only his armor bearer reflects greatly on his nature of being a worshiper of Yehovah who courageously puts his life on the line as evidence of his faith. Now, Yohanan and his anonymous servant first merely traded insults and challenges with this enemy across the ravine. But then upon hearing the words from an enemy soldier, come up to us, that confirmed for him that God was in this venture. So they crawled up this steep, rocky wall above the wadi and they attacked. Now the commotion of the fight stirred the entire Philistine camp into a panicked reaction such that King Saul's lookouts saw this confusion and chaos and they, they reported back to Saul. Now first indecisively and then impulsively Saul joined the fight with his 600 soldiers accompanied by some Hebrews that were in the area who'd been, been in hiding and then some other Hebrews who were at peace with the Philistines and even camped alongside them at Mi'kmash because they had reversed their new loyalties and rejoined their Israelite brethren in, in killing these Philistine soldiers. 
Well, Saul was so excited at how well this battle was going that he ordered his men to take an oath that they would not eat until they had thoroughly vanquished the enemy. But you know, battles in that era, being lengthy, physically draining affairs, meant that soon the Israelite soldiers were famished, dehydrated, nearly unable to continue to prosecute the war. After taking some domestic animals as spoils of war from the Philistines, these exhausted Hebrew soldiers began hurriedly slaughtering those animals on the ground where the meat couldn't properly drain of its blood, thus committing a great sin. Saul saw this. He put a stop to it. And he had a large stone rolled over to him for the animals to be slaughtered upon, thus allowing the meat to drain properly. In but hours after his army was somewhat refreshed and restored, Saul determined it might be best to continue their pursuit of this remnant of these Philistine soldiers in a night operation. But the priest thought it best to first consult God by means of Urim and Tumim, those two stones, to see if that strategy agreed with the Lord's will. To Saul's surprise, he received no answer to his inquiry. And so he rightfully determined that the Lord's silence and withdrawal from Israel had to be because of the commission of some great sin. The next step was to determine what that sin was and who committed it. That's what we're going to read about now. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14, which is... um, And we're going to start reading at verse 36, which is on page 313 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel 14, verse 36. Shaul said, let's go after the Philistines by night. We'll plunder them until dawn. We won't leave one of them alive. And they answered, do whatever seems good to you. But the Kohen, the priest, said, let's approach God here. Shaul consulted God. Should I go down in pursuit of the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But he didn't answer him that day. Shaul said, come here, all you heads of the people. Now think carefully. Who has committed this sin today? For as Adonai, Israel's deliverer, lives, even if it proves to be Yohanan, my son, he must be put to death. But no one among the people answered him. And then he said to all Israel, You be on the one side, and I and Yohanan, my son, will be on the other. And the people replied to uh, to Shaul, Do what seems good to you. And Shaul said, to Adonai, the God of Israel, who is right? Jonathan and Saul were chosen by lot, and the people went free. And Saul said, cast lots now between me and Jonathan, my son. Jonathan was chosen. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you did. And Yohanan told him, yes, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff in my hand. 
Here I am. I'm ready to die. And Saul said, May God do the same to me and more also if you're not put to death, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Heaven forbid, as Adonai lives, not one hair on his head will fall to the ground because he worked with God today. In this way, the people rescued Jonathan so that he didn't die. And then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines returned to their own territory. So, Shaul took over the rulership of Israel. He fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, the people of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Sophah, and the Philistines. No matter which way he turned, he defeated them. He demonstrated his strength by attacking Amalek. And he saved Israel from the power of those who were plundering them. The sons of Shaul were Yohanatan, Yishvi, and Malkishwa, while the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the older, Merav, and the name of the younger, Michal. Shaul's wife was named Ahinoam, the, son of, uh, the daughter of Ahim Ma'atz. The commander of his army was named Avner, the son of Ner, Shaul's uncle. Kish was the father of Shaul, and Ner, the father of Avner, who was the son of Aviel. Now as long as Saul lived, there was bitter war against the Philistines. Whenever Saul saw any strong and courageous man, he recruited him into his service. Verse 38 makes it clear that it was the heads, the chiefs, the military leaders of Israel who were called to come and stand before King Saul to confess who among them had sinned and thus caused the God of Israel to withdraw from his people. This was in Saul's eyes to be a divine trial. And the words of this story and the outcome make it apparent that indeed the Lord was orchestrating it. Now this ever impulsive and grandstanding King Saul now makes another rash vow. He was currently in the throes of dealing with this messy aftermath of having made his army vow not to eat. What an amazingly stupid and foolish thing to do. Only he turns around and he does it again. But this time, it was Saul who made the vow personally, and so he would bear any divine consequences for breaking its terms. You see, when it says in verse 39, we have Paul saying, for as... Adonai, it actually says, for, uh, for as Yehovah, Israel's deliverer, lives, he is invoking the traditional Middle Eastern vow formula. Saul is essentially swearing to God that what he next pronounces, he will follow through with. And what he says is that he vows that even if it proves to be Jonathan my son, he must be put to death. In other words, whoever it is that has committed such a serious sin as to cause God to react by withholding his oracle from them, by means of the Urim and Tumim, that person must die. No one is exempted, not even his own son. Now, naturally, it goes without saying that Saul is excluding himself from any possibility of being the one who may have sinned. 
Now, no one stepped forward to confess any sin. Let's face it, whoever did it would have been signing their own death warrant. So that meant that another means of discovering the offender was needed, and Saul decided to employ lots. So in verse 40, the narrator states that Saul said to all Israel to stand in one area, and then Saul and his son Jonathan would would stand in another, and then the lot would determine whether the fault lay with the general assembly of Israel or with its two leaders, King Saul and Jonathan. Now contained in these words is an example of what it means and what it doesn't mean when we say we need to take the Bible literally. Because here it is said that Saul told all Israel to stand in one area for lots to be cast. In this case, all Israel meant the chiefs, the military leaders who were present, who represented all the tribes of Israel. That is, For Saul, in this context, he was not exempting any clan or tribe from being involved in this divine trial by lots. I want to talk about this for a minute. You know, there's been centuries of needless theological arguments over the two terms, infallible and literal when referring to the nature of the Bible and how we ought to read and perceive its context. Now, contents. We're certainly not going to fully enter that debate today. But as to the word literal, in in our current age, literal has usually meant that we're to take the Holy Scriptures word for word And further, that those words are so powerful and mysterious in their nature that they transcend time and culture. That what those words mean to the minds of their readers from any era, any place, any culture, can all be different, but it's all valid. I'm here to tell you that's nonsense. And such a definition has been scribed by various Christian denominational leaders as a means for them to twist and turn the Bible's meaning into anything that supports their doctrines and agendas. What literal ought to mean and what I mean by literal is to take the words for exactly as best as we can discern what they meant to the minds of the people who wrote them. we have to always remember that unless we are scholars who can read the Bible in its original language and from the oldest manuscripts, we're always reading translations of translations. And invariably, when we read our Bibles in English in our 21st century Western culture, the word pictures that just pop into our minds are in the context of our current society and current vocabulary normal. Thus, despite the generally incorrect, or maybe more generously overly simplistic, modern theological definition of the term literal, we find no 
no contradiction when we take it literally between verse 38 when it says that Saul called only the army chiefs to stand before him and then, and then in a couple more verses says all Israel is to stand on one side while he and Jonathan stand the other by a much more intellectually and factually honest definition of literal all of Israel is merely the ancient way of Saul saying every tribe and clan of Israel must be represented not every citizen of Israel must be present now the result of this first round of lots is stated in verse 41 the lots say that all Israel is innocent the trouble lies with either Yohanan or Saul or maybe both so now that the matter has been narrowed down to two people the next round of lots will determine whether it's the king or his son that will be identified as the offender Jonathan was fingered and his father confronts him by saying tell me what you did and he answers that he did indeed eat of the forbidden food in this case the honey that was on the forest floor thus we find out something that hasn't been entirely obvious up to now that all along the sin that Saul has been trying to discover is who is it that broke the oath not to eat before the day ended but taking it to the next level we see that what the lots actually discovered was who it was that ate anything on that day not so much as who it was who violated an oath the sinning because Jonathan had not even been aware that such an oath, uh, such a vow or an oath had been demanded by his father so after admitting that he ate honey Jonathan responds to his father's vow that the perpetrator must die and the response varies a little bit in 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 the English from bible version to bible version and our complete jewish bibles I think have one of the poorer translations. Right? In Hebrew, Jonathan says Hineamut. Hineamut, which literally means behold, I must die. See Jewish scholars say, all right, that this response was in the form of a rhetorical question, behold, I must die. Or possibly it was kind of sarcastic, behold, I must die. See what I'm saying? Okay. By no means is the proper rendering I'm ready to die. Like in our complete Jewish Bible. Thus implying that he admits he was wrong and he understands he has no choice but to accept his fate because remember, he had done nothing wrong before the Lord. He took no vow to abstain from the food. King Saul and all of his twisted Self-righteousness reminds us a little bit of the Inquisition. Says to his son, "Well then, may God do the same to me and more also if you're not put to death, Jonathan." Now he's talking to his son here. What Saul has done is now make another rash oath before the Lord. The third one contained in this short episode. He has vowed that either he puts Jonathan to death or if he doesn't then the lord should see to it that Saul is killed and even worse 
Well, doesn't all this bring to mind that terrible vow that the judge Jephthah made? That if the Lord granted him victory on the battlefield, that he would offer the first thing that came through his door to greet him when he returned home. And that thing turned out to be his daughter. At least Jephthah had the excuse that he never intended that any human being, let alone his innocent child, be that sacrificial victim. But on the other hand, he blithely offered up a vow to God whereby he didn't consider the possibility of unintended consequences. Saul, on the other hand, made a vow that necessarily involved the death of a human being. Now, even of his own son, for something as silly as having eaten food after a long day of battling the enemy. But in many ways, Saul has just sealed his own fate. For he has vowed that if Jonathan isn't killed, he must be. You know, we need to back off just a little bit and view Saul, King Saul, not as a depraved and intentionally wicked man, but rather as a fragile, insecure, ego-driven man who often succumbed to the same evil inclination that's the ruin of us all. The poor judgment that this first king of Israel constantly displayed was a result of these flaws, not an inherent predisposition to be a rebel. So we can, in some ways, look upon King Saul with, I don't know, sympathy rather than condemnation. Just as Yeshua, in a certain way, looked in sympathy at those two men hanging on their crosses on either side of him, well aware that they were being punished for crimes they had knowingly and willingly committed. This man... Shaul, who turned out to be a type of anti-king, wasn't born with a soul or a spirit any different than the rest of us. And I suspect we need to call that to mind when we think of ourselves and when we think of the nature of the future anti-king, who's better known as the Antichrist, who will be born and as, as an innocent baby, to a human mother and father. But will at some point in his life completely turn himself over to the evil one? The coming Antichrist will not be of supernatural origin any more than was King Saul. He will simply be a man who turns himself over to and thus is possessed by an evil supernatural control to a greater degree than any man before or after he arises. Well, the army of Israel fully understands that what Saul has done in condemning Jonathan is wrong. It's unjust on any level. They knew that Jonathan wasn't even with them when Saul ordered that they take the vow against eating. And therefore, when Jonathan did eat some honey, that, it wasn't a sin. 
And so whatever the Lord was reacting to by his silence, it could not have been Yohanatan tasting a little honey. Further, they knew that Jonathan was a brave and selfless leader who genuinely strove to be faithful to God, unlike his despot father, Saul. Thus, Saul announcing that Jonathan would die drove his men to rebel against Saul. They told the king they wouldn't allow him to kill his son. They even credited the great deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines Not to their king, Saul, but to who? To Jonathan. They credited it to Jonathan. Further, that it was because Jonathan had cooperated with God that this victory even occurred today. In the end, Saul didn't execute Jonathan, as he vowed he would. And he ordered the night operation to pursue the Philistines canceled. Saul was thoroughly exposed, thoroughly humiliated. He returned home to Gibeah and the remnant of the Mi'kmaq garrison of Philistines limped back to their home territory along the seacoast. Well, from verse 47 to the end is a brief summary to explain what went on for a time after the battle of Mi'kmaq Pass and the political position that Saul maintained. Notice that his kingship continued on. That he presided over a a whole series of victories upon his familiar enemies of Moab and Edom and Ammon and the Philistines. In time, he even attacked Amalek. And in the coming chapter, chapter 15, we're going to read specifically about his war with Amalek. Well, Saul's sons are listed Five times in the Old Testament, but among them, only Jonathan and Ishbosheth played a role in any of the stories recorded about Saul and his offspring. Next up, his two daughters, Merav and Michal, are, are named, and only after that, his wife, Achinoam. Now, see, this kind of genealogy was always an important footnote to ancient writings so as to provide evidence of exactly who was being spoken of. Now, we're also informed that the top commander at this time of Saul's army was a fellow named Abner, son of Ner, and that Ner was Saul's uncle. Now, note, Abner means my father is Ner. Also note that, as was usual, close family members were given the choicest offices, under the king, because they were the surest, they, they're the most sure to be the most loyal, or at least they helped to try and keep the accumulated wealth and power in the clan. Well, this final verse of this chapter reminds the reader that the defeat of the Philistine garrison at Mi'kmaq in no way equated to the subduing of the Philistines in general. Despite the several military activities and victories of King Saul, the Philistines remained intact. And they were a constant source of trouble for Israel. I don't think I can do any better than to quote Dr. David some more about where things stood with Saul. As we are about to transition now from chapter 14 to chapter 15. Dr. Samor says this, Humanly speaking, Saul continued to make progress 
in strengthening Israel's military power and administration. His drastic failures will come not from his mishandling of the people or his enemies, but rather from his neglect and his disobedience to God's word. It was this neglect and disobedience to Israel's God by Israel's king that not only eventually proved to be fatal for King Saul and his sons, but also allowed Israel's enemies to survive and fight another day as a never-ending source of oppression and trouble for God's people. Now, it is a lesson from this that while preached on, recorded and commented on in history books, and lamented especially by the elderly of every generation, this lesson that we see here just goes on ignored. It's a lesson that modern-day Israel refuses to acknowledge and so makes the same mistakes as did their ancestors. The Lord says, do not tolerate shrines to pagan gods in your midst. And Israel today is full of them. The Lord says, drive out my enemies from the land. Instead, Israel tries to make peace with them. The Lord says, never give away any peace of the kingdom of God. And Israel only negotiates how little or much they must give away to attain respect and friendship with the world. It's a lesson that our precious church, itself a gift from our Messiah, fails to grasp. A lesson that says that obedience is the only acceptable demonstration of love to God that humans have been given to give back. And yet false doctrines have arisen that irrationally proclaim that Christian obedience to God's word amounts to legalism. And therefore obedience is not only a thing of the past, it's something we must shun. Rather, since Messiah's advent, that we are to primarily demonstrate love of God in the form of affection and feelings of warmth towards him and towards other people. Our Christian leadership often has no fear of creating self-serving doctrines and then attaching the Lord's name to them. On the other hand, the modern Christian congregation doesn't seem to feel much obligation to seriously examine God's word and compare it to our leader's proclamations. We just assume that if a man of the cloth says it, we have no obligation to do anything but believe it and accept it as truth. That if we are given false information and we decide to live by it, it's not our sin, it's his. He'll bear the consequences, not us. See, it's a lesson that says... That while we might wish we could separate ourselves and our fate from our leadership, things just don't and never have worked out that way. The Lord indeed bestows His redemption upon us individual by individual, as He deems it appropriate. But almost all else in this world is interconnected. 
the most despotic tyrants this earth has ever known, even those loathed by his own people, will in time drag his nation down with him. It is the fear of that leader that usually keeps the people from taking courageous action, preferring instead to hope that something will happen that will remove him and save them. But in the end, it's the people who will be held accountable before God for their inaction in the same way that the leader is held accountable before God for his actions. You know, I wonder out loud today, how much more will a free nation of citizens who are given the privilege of selecting our leaders peacefully and removing them peacefully if need be, are held accountable by our Lord for our apathy and our inaction and our poor judgment. You know, I think we tend to look at a godless nation like Russia and we wonder how God's, how great God's wrath is going to be upon them. But in fact, you know, they don't really have the freedom to choose at all. And they're mercilessly persecuted if they look to God for wisdom. Yet we in the West turn around and like King Saul, we first of all absolve ourselves from the terrible and godless decisions of our leaders who we choose and who we're not obligated to keep. We who have full liberty to discover the principles of the word of God and to live in harmony with those principles well, we just usually prefer to put on some blinders, live our private lives, gripe a little bit, wring our hands and compromise. I believe that our sin is greater. I believe that our consequences will be greater. And I think our present circumstances are but the harbinger of God's disgust with us. You know, it's a familiar picture. It's one we've been reading about in 1 Samuel for months and months. Let's move on to chapter 15. Now, we're going to take the time to read it all. Just going to have very few words to say about it to close the day, but I want to read it all. All right? It's best to do this in context. It's a long chapter, but uh, let's stick with it. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Page 313 in your complete Jewish Bible. Samuel said to Saul, Adonai sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now listen to what Adonai has to say. Here's what Adonai Savot says. I remember what Amalek did to Israel, how they fought against Israel when they were coming up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. Completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill men and women, children, babies, cows and sheep, camels and donkeys. Saul summoned the people and reviewed them in Talaim. 200,000 foot soldiers with another 10,000 men from Judah. Shaul arrived at the city of Amalek and he lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Now you go away, withdraw, leave your homes here with the uh, Amalekites. Otherwise I might destroy you along with them, even though you were kind to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites went away from among the Amalekites and Saul ordered... Uh, Saul attacked Amalek, starting at uh, Havilah and continuing towards Shur at the border of Egypt. 
He took Agog, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However, Saul and the people spared Agog, along with the best of the sheep and cattle, and even the second best, also the lambs and everything that was good. They weren't inclined to destroy these things. But everything that was worthless or weak, they destroyed. And then the word of Adonai came to Samuel. I regret setting up Saul as king because he's turned his back from following me and hasn't obeyed my orders. This made Samuel very sad. So he cried to Adonai all night. Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. However, Samuel was told, Saul came to Carmel to set up a monument for himself there. But now he has left and he's on his way down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, Oh, may Adonai bless you. I have done what Adonai ordered. But Samuel answered, If so, why do I hear sheep bleeding and cows mooing? And Saul said, Well, they brought them from the... Uh, from the Amalekites because the people spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to Adonai, your God. But we completely destroyed the rest. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! Stop! I'm going to tell you what Adonai said to me last night. He said, Speak. And Samuel then said, You may be small in your own sight. But you're the head of the tribes of Israel. Adonai anointed you king over Israel. Now Adonai sent you on a mission and he told you, go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners. Keep making war on them till they've been exterminated. Why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what Adonai said? From Adonai's viewpoint, you've done an evil thing. And Saul said to Samuel, I did too pay attention to what Adonai said. I carried out the mission on which Adonai sent me. I brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people took some of the spoil. The best of the sheep and cattle set aside for destruction. To sacrifice to Adonai, your God. And Gilgal. And Samuel said, Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says. Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of sorcery, stubbornness like the crime of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of Adonai, he too has rejected you as king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the order of Adonai and your words too because I was, I was afraid of the people and, and I listened to what they said. Now please, pardon my sin. Come back with me so that I can worship Adonai. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not go back with you because you have rejected the word of Adonai and Adonai has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel was turning around to leave, he took hold of the hem of his, his cloak and it tore. And Samuel said to him, Adonai has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today. And he's given it to a fellow countryman of yours who's, who's better than you. Moreover, the eternal one of Israel will not lie or change his mind because he isn't a mere human being subject to changing his mind. And then Saul said, I have sinned. But in spite of that, please show me respect 
now before the leaders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I can worship Adonai, your God. So Samuel followed Shaul back and Shaul worshipped Adonai. And then Samuel said, Bring Agag, the king of Amalek, here to me. Agag came to him with chains and said, Without doubt, mine will be a bitter death. Samuel said, Just as your sword has left women childless, so will your mother be left childless among women. Then Samuel cut Agag into pieces before Adonai in Gilgal. Samuel returned to Ramah. Shaul went up to his house in Givat Shaul. Never again did Samuel see Saul till the day he died. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And Adonai regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. We'll finish up here quickly. Just as I said at the outset of the previous chapter, that I'd like for us to view Saul's reign as that of an anti-king, I have a somewhat connected mold that I'd like for us to view the war of Amalek, of chapter 15, because I think it will have more meaning for us. I'd like to think, like for us to think of it all, what we're reading in 15 and then 16, as a type or a shadow of Armageddon. Now, I don't say that lightly. I tell you honestly that because it is a shadow, then not every last detail of Armageddon will perfectly dovetail with Saul's war with Amalek. But boy, the parallels are striking and unavoidable. You know, there's a fine line between allegorizing illustration and holding up one thing as a type or a shadow of another, and I really don't ever want to cross over into allegorizing. So it might be too strong to label this war with Amalek as a prophetic shadow of the war of Armageddon. So maybe the best characterization I can come up with is that what we read here sets down a pattern for Armageddon. I think that what we see here is a God pattern developed. And thus I prefer to view the parallel between the two events of Saul's war with Amalek as setting down a pattern for Messiah's war at Armageddon with one notable exception. And the exception is that while Saul refused to prosecute the holy conflict with Amalek as God ordained it, Christ will perfectly prosecute the war at Armageddon. Chapter 14 ends the account of the rise of a monarchy, the first monarchy to rule over Israel. And by enumerating the many failures of Saul, the first Israelite monarchy. Chapter 15 now begins to lead us into a demonstration of what will inevitably happen to somebody who determines himself to rule God's kingdom, but not according to God's word.
This inevitably leads us to the next major event, which is the replacement of Saul and of his dynasty by a man of a totally different nature. A nature that is much closer to Jonathan's than it is to Saul's. So after we finish chapter 15, chapter chapter 16 is going to introduce us to the Nagid, the king-in-waiting, who is none none other than David. Of course, the only person who knows that David is the anointed Nagid is the Lord. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read this. But as it is, your kingship, Saul's kingship, will not be established. Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Adonai has appointed him to be prince over his people because you didn't observe what Adonai ordered you to do. Note that the Lord has already made his choice of the next king, even though as of yet it's not been revealed to us. Let's stop here for today so we can get a good fresh start for King Saul's war with Amalek next week. I'm going to tell you, there's a feast available for us in this chapter and I don't want to miss a morsel of it.